That sound you're hearing right now is footsteps crunching on icy snow in the Shikwamagon National Forest in northern Wisconsin. Today, on the last episode of season two, we're talking about climate change because climate change threatens to upend everything Western science understands about native and invasive species. First, we join a team at the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission that are carefully observing the relationships between the seasons and all other beings in the forest. Then we talk to the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu team, who are helping tribal nations find ways to assert their knowledge and adapt to climate change. Finally, we step back 20,000 years to see what paleoecology can teach us about how species move as the climate changes. But our first story takes place in the cold months of winter. Sydney, I'll hand it over to you. Hannah Ponchi has been coming to this small lake nestled deep in the Shiguamaga National Forest almost every week for the last five years. Sometimes in the spring and fall, she's here even more often. During the winter, though, her visits drop off. It's January. The forests are heaped with snow, and the lake is covered in ice. Yeah. Definitely really connected to this place. And like each tree in particular, I've seen hundreds of times. So I feel like I got to know them each a little bit individually too. I guess when you're out here by yourself, you get a chance to listen more than talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Listen to all the other animals. And sounds outside. Or sorry if these interviews are a little bit hard to understand. We were outside masked up in the wind, so some of it's a little muffled. Hannah is a climate change scientist with the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. She keeps returning to this site to learn how it changes from season to season and from year to year. I was really lucky to join her and her colleague Rob Kroll on one of their winter surveys. The Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission which everyone just calls Glyphwick, represents 11 Ojibwe tribes from Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Hannah and Rob aren't tribal members, but they've worked for Glyphwick for years. The type of observation they're doing is called phenology. Phenology, that is basically the study of seasons, like how plants and animals and other living beings would respond to seasonal change. Like the first leaves on the trees or when the first blueberries get ripe, right? Right, or when ice forms on a lake and how the ice develops over the course of a winter, which is actually what Hannah and Rob came out to measure today. To answer those questions, Hannah and Rob have been visiting a few different lakes over the course of the winter where they've been collecting information on the amount of ice and snow on those lakes. The word for ice is mikwam. Well, there's probably lots of different variations of that. For the Ojibwe people, Rob explains that Mikwam is an animate being, just like trees or animals or humans. Mikwam is one of several beings that Hannah and Rob are looking after in this project. So ice out is pretty variable in the spring, but then it can vary a lot even in different parts of the seeded territories we work in, but it's something we pay a lot of attention to because as soon as the ice goes out, tribal members are out there steering for walleye. Basswood trees, wild leeks, white cedar, blueberries, raspberries, black ash, and paper birch are some of the other beings included in this study. 
All of them were selected based on input from tribal elders and harvesters, and all have unique uses and cultural meaning. Hannah and Rab chose this place as a study site because most of the beings, like the cedar trees and the blueberries, they're all here, they're converging at this one place. The lake is hard to access, especially in the winter. The lake was about a mile's walk down the snowmobile trail, and Hannah and Rab said that the fastest way to get there is usually to ski, but when we went back to do this survey, the snow was really thin and there were rocks poking through, so we thought it would be a better idea to just walk instead. Hannah pulled this purple plastic sled out of the truck and filled it up with all of the equipment they wanted to take back in. So I followed Hannah and Rob down this trail, and along the way they told me a lot about the project and about what it's like to come back to this place season after season and see the way it's changing. So after a while, Hannah and Rob veered off the trail into the woods, just into like this knee-deep snow. I was basically just like plunging along after them. It was a while before we could see the lake through the trees, but Hannah and Rob seemed like they knew the way to this place by heart. Rob stopped occasionally to see, to look for wolf tracks in the snow because in the past there have been, there have been wolves back here. Mm, did you see any? No, we didn't. But finally, you can see the lake kind of through this gap in the trees. When we reached the shore of the lake, Hannah and Rob paused for a minute under this fir tree. They took a few moments to acknowledge the other beings around them before they began their work. The lake was long and narrow. It it's actually this beaver pond, so there's a dam on one side, and these huge hills rising up on, on both sides of us. Did you start a farm I did. I did not. Oh, okay, perfect. Okay. Hannah measured the snow depth in a few different places. Uh, what did I say snow depth was? Seven. Seven. At the first site, Hannah shoveled the snow off a little region of the ice, and then she used a hand auger to drill three closely spaced holes. What's that sound? The ice auger. <laughs> then she unfolded this huge ice saw, like the type you see in pictures from the 1800s of people harvesting ice off lakes and she cut between the holes and this little chunk of ice bobbed up into her hands. She measured the amount of compacted snow, like the snowy white ice on the top of the ice block compared to the amount of clear ice that was growing down into the water. And when she holds the ice up to the light, you can see all the different layers. Did you get a sense for how many inches deep the ice was? There, yeah, it, there was about a foot of ice. Okay. So snow insulates the ice. So it, the more snow there is, the harder it is for the cold air um, to get down to the ice and, <clears throat> and make it thicker. So if we have a lot of snow, probably less ice. So at the next site, Hannah passed me the auger and she let me try. The texture of the ice changes as I turn the auger and I imagine that I'm cutting back through the winter, like the afternoon thaws on sunny days or the longest nights of the year, the first November freezes. When we're done, Hannah fits the ice gently back in the hole. She stands the stick back upright so she can find the spot again in the future and then she shovels the snow back into place like we were never even there.
I'm Sydney. And I'm Bonnie. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Secret. Phenology looks at how seasonal changes evolve over time and how different cycles are related to each other. For example, the ice coming off the lake is related to when walleye spawn. And as climate change intensifies, all of these cycles will be affected in ways that we can't even imagine yet. Phenology also gives us this window into how beings are responding to climate change right now, or at least it gives us this baseline of what places look like today so we can better understand how they might be changing in the future. We're five years into the study. I would think, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, we might be able to pick up if there's any kind of trend. Like Hannah said, it's a little early to pick out any trends from this site in specific. Long-term RIN records of a place are relatively rare in general, and usually they don't go back very far. But the Ojibwe people have been living in these woods and along these lakes for centuries and centuries and centuries, passing down stories and traditions that are tied to the seasons and to the other beings that live there. Across the continent, assimilation projects carried out by colonial governments mean that a great deal of this knowledge is lost. But in the Upper Great Lakes, some of this wisdom remains safe with knowledge holders and elders. Hannah and Rob are gathering those stories, too. Stories from elders who have lived in this place for a long time and have witnessed the changing. There's a lot of connections between technology and certain species. Like, when the frogs start singing, it's time to go spearing for a walleye. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So. There's a lot of those like, indicators that those will be affected by climate change too. Those things that might not always happen at the same time anymore, but that's, those are the cues that native people have been using for years and years and years to know when to harvest. Hannah and Rob hope that together, the science and the stories will expand their understanding of what's at stake and how these lands are changing. One thing that we're in- interested in is comparing it to historical records. And we have, we've been doing a lot of interviews with tribal members about changes they've seen in their lifetime or their, fa- their family's lifetime. So monitoring chronology now, we'll be able to compare a little bit to observations they've made over the past decade. What Hannah and Rob are learning will help the tribes of the Upper Great Lakes make preparations for the future. Historically, we were a very mobile people. You know, as as we saw change and as we saw something declining, for example, you know, we could we could pick our stuff up and go somewhere, go somewhere else. You know, if we couldn't actually help out uh, at that at that moment, um, we could pick our stuff up and move our community somewhere else and move our family somewhere else. Um, and we don't have that luxury anymore because as tribal people, we are stuck on our reservations. And so as these changes are happening and, and occurring, we can't take our reservation and pick it up and move it north to Canada and plop it down and say, okay, no, the Kiwana Bay reservation's up here in Canada, y'all. We're, uh, we're moving with the sugar maple trees. We can't do that anymore. You know, we, we are bound by the, the legal 
boundaries of our reservations now. And so it's even more important that, you know, we get back to the land, we participate in the land again, and we participate in our ceremonies again, and we witness those changes as they're occurring. That's Jerry Jandro. Uh, my name is Jerry Jandro. Um, I'm from the Kiwana Bay Indian community. Jerry and his partner Katie Brissett own and operate Dynamite Hill Farms in the Kiwana Bay Indian community, which is close to Lake Superior in what we now know as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Fighting fires in the summer, wildland firefighter in the summertime, and uh, ricer in the fall, and a sugar maker in the spring, and, and, and a dad to a lot of kids. So, Jerry studied forestry at Michigan Tech, and then he established the first Kiwana Bay Indian Community Tribal Forestry Department. As a forester uh, for our tribe, we oftentimes dealt with uh, the U.S. Forest Service or um, the state DNR programs, and it became obvious that uh, those agencies had very little understanding of those indigenous perspectives on the land. And so anytime that we tried to start a project, uh, where there was multiple agencies involved, which was pretty much every single time, we had to educate them before we could even begin moving projects forward. And so it felt like we had to take several steps backwards before we can even start moving forward with anything that we did. And it just became more of a burden than anything. I mean, it was a necessary burden, but at times it felt like, you know, why is this responsibility always falling onto my shoulders? I mean, I know about their agencies. I know who they are. I know what their directives are, but they don't know anything about me or, or my community. Even though we have rights that are guaranteed by the, uh, the constitution that protect uh, our treaty rights. So it seemed extremely imbalanced. Jerry was observing that there wasn't a clear way that he could see for tribal nations to advocate for different ways of quote-unquote managing the land. There were stories and ceremonies, languages, thousands of years of observation, but Western scientists like documents. I felt proposing uh, different ways of doing things was, was challenging because people in the scientific community always wanted some sort of paper that, that backed uh, what you were proposing, and it just didn't exist. So Jerry and the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu team set out to create that paper. So they got a team together to create the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu. They got together tribal representatives, people from local governments, researchers from places that we now know as Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And this group started meeting every other month. They had to figure out how do our Ojibwe and Menominee cultures want to adapt to climate change, and how do we put that down on paper? My name is Sarah Smith. Uh, I'm from the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. When we were um, doing these working sessions, we tried as best we could to all be in person. But I think being in person for those meetings was really important because stories came out. Um, you know, we had kids in the room. Um, constantly reminding us, you know, why we're doing this. Sarah Smith joined the team as a liaison for the College of Menominee Nation, which is where she works. And it was a really great process because it actually brought us closer as a group. Um, so we weren't just colleagues, we were more like a family. The idea was to take an already existing climate adaptation menu as a sort of framework 
and they started editing it, like going through line by line, doing a lot of wordsmithing. Everything that we put into the document was all based on consensus, so that's why we had a lot of wordsmithing. I mean, there was one term we spent an entire day talking about, right? Can you guess what that word was? I I think I have some suspicions. (laughs) That term was invasive species. Yeah, so when it came to talking about invasive species, these beans are going according to their original instructions. They're just in a different place. You know, they don't have the same checks and balances, the other beans around them. Um, And so that's why we had a lot of discussion about invasive species is because they're they're not the enemy because there's a lot of talk about, oh, we need to eradicate them. We need to just get rid of them, right? Um, When they're only doing what they were told to do. Another term that they spent a long time talking about was climate change. Here's Rob Kroll. In addition to being part of the phenology project, he was an editor of the tribal adaptation menu. I mean, the way it was kind of explained to me anyway, there really isn't a term in Ojibwe Moan that would translate to climate change because over thousands of years, things are constantly changing. And people and other beings had to learn how to adapt to it and change what they were doing. Yeah, and um, coming up with the title for the menu was also a big um, project to do as well, just because climate adaptation menu doesn't translate from any of the languages. Each chapter in the tribal climate adaptation menu is a strategy to adapt to a change in climate. So for example, woven into these strategies about cultural practices, connections with the landscape, and spiritual guidance, and very careful observation is, for example, strategy five, which is reduce the impact of biological and anthropogenic stressors. And then they list ways to do this. So, for example, maintain or improve the ability of communities to balance the effects of non-local beings. So this whole process of writing the menu took two years, and now the menu is in high demand. It's based on Ojibwe and Menominee perspectives and values, but it's designed to be customized by other tribes. And now it's being used all over from Oklahoma to Alaska to Canada. It's usually used in workshops put on for tribal nations. I I would like to see this menu used as an educational tool for state agencies and federal agencies that are around and, and internationally too, because this could also be used over in Canada with their, with their departments and their agencies as well. You know, as, as Anishinaabeg people, as people of this land and as, and as people that have usufructory rights to this land, uh, protected by a treaty with the United States, it's imperative that these other agencies have a better understanding of who we are as indigenous people and understand, you know, what, what our values are and what are the things that we need to um, ensure that our, our rights to hunt, fish, and gather on these lands are protected and enhanced. One really important thing that is in the menu that kind of is inherent in all the different strategies is getting people out on the land to observe. I think one of the things that, you know, through a lot of our conversations that we that we came to was this, this point again about um, relationships. And... Um, the fact that you know our people 
you know, through through colonization and through assimilation and stuff like that, we, our relationship to the land has been has been broken, and we don't spend as much time on the land like we used to. If you if you look at the way we kind of set up that that menu too, there was a lot of emphasis on getting people back onto the landscape, uh, participating in culture again, and bringing the people to the table that still have those relationships because she's telling us everything that we need to know but if we're not out there listening then then we won't know uh, you know change has been happening forever you know nothing is is ever really static um you know especially in nature after the break i wanted to learn more about the long-term changes jerry was talking about and how they can complicate our idea of what is Native and what isn't. There once was a resident of Wisconsin who was unable to locate a trash bin. The unwanted items found their way to the ground, and from there the impending disasters compound. The spring snowmelt and summer rains washed the refuse down storm drains across the land and other locations unplanned. The wastewater treatment plant did its best to filter and settle, but microplastic waste was just too small to wrestle. Within the existing technology and cost parameters constraining the work of pollution control managers. Other problems ensued as the organisms inadvertently ingested the waste that humanity manufactures with unabating haste. Want to learn more about the impacts of waste on our waters? The Trash Trunk Lessons and Tools will allow you to consider and measure how to rethink, refuse, reduce, refurbish, repair, repurpose, recycle, and treasure the resources we steward on behalf of one another. If you're among the many who are looking for online learning materials for use at home, check out the Trash Trunk. Its free lessons are great for learners anywhere from levels kindergarten through adult. Click on the link in the description and visit the Wisconsin Sea Grant website for more details. This idea that change has been happening forever, I wanted to learn more. So I talked to Jack Williams. He's a paleoecologist and a geography professor at UW-Madison. And he spends a lot of time thinking about how ecosystems have responded to climate change in the past. Jack takes a long view on invasive species. Inherently, to call something a native species implies that you have some moment in time where that species was present. You're declaring that it's historic range or it's native range. And most of the time in the U.S., we would say that is, you know, let's say 1700 A.D. We have to be really careful about this stuff because we know that climate changes all the time and species move around because of that. Humans have been in the Americas for the last 15,000 years, and they have altered the ecosystems in various ways. And, and so from a paleoecologist perspective, to call something a native species or non-native is a little arbitrary a, a lot of times. On a global climate timescale, the lakes we love, they are new. The plants and animals that live here, those are even newer. Like Bonnie, picture yourself standing on Picnic Point, looking out over Lake Mendota. Okay, so yeah, Picnic Point is really close to Sea Grant headquarters at UW-Madison. I like to go there. It's a popular hiking spot with a network of trails. I would see some tall oak trees, some prairie grasses, um, the lake in front of me. If you are there, 
20,000 years ago, your view would be a lot different. You know, 20,000 years ago, there would have been a picnic point, right? That there would have been an ice sheet here. And, you know, we always say you know, a mile high, you know, kilometer high is probably several kilometers high. This big dome of ice centered over Canada all the way down here. And so Picnic Point and Lake Mendota and Lake Monona, all those came into being maybe about 15,000 years ago or so. The lakes formed where stagnant blocks of melting ice left behind these, they're called kettle holes. Then, you know, we, what we see is a whole series of ecosystem changes where first what we have around here are, you know, spruce trees and, and bogs and wetlands and mastodons, you know, these kind of these kind of glacial forests and glacial landscapes. I like how he's just like, these trees, these trees, and they're mastodons. <laughs> Whoa, I can't imagine that. <laughs> so yeah, the temp keeps rising though, and the spruce trees around here die out and mastodons go extinct. Pine species move into the area, and then maybe around 10,000 years ago, if you're kind of here on Picnic Point, kind of watching time and ecosystems flow by you, you would see oak savannas starting to establish and elm forests starting to move into the area. So at this point, all of the ice is gone. We've entered this period of relative warmth called the Holocene. And this is about when the first people begin to live on the shores of Lake Mendota. This huge change going from glaciers to Lake Mendota, that was caused by around 10 degrees Fahrenheit and warming. And those changes happen because of like very minor shifts in the Earth's rotation and warming feedbacks that were set off by these melting ice caps. And it ushered in this ongoing migration of living beings into the state. Trees grow, they drop their seeds, and those seeds are most likely to grow along the edge of that tree range where conditions are most favorable. This type of movement takes centuries to play out, and scientists like Jack look to lakes for records of these changes. Because as it turns out, you know, lakes aren't just beautiful for recreation and have all of these species and food webs going on in them. They're also kind of natural collectors of everything in the lake and around the lake. Sediment washes in, it carries pollen from everything growing around the lake. And Jack says understanding how something responds to change in the past can help us predict how it will respond to change in the future. These climate changes aren't just kind of gradual and linear. There's some pretty abrupt changes along the way. What I'm interested about as an ecologist is how do plant species and other species handle abrupt climate change? How, do, how quickly do species respond? How quickly can species adapt or migrate? How do we manage forests today what, or aquatic ecosystems? Or how should we help species adapt to the changing environments around us right now? When climate starts to change, Jack says a species has a few options. First, it can adapt, which basically means it evolves to be successful under new conditions. Second, it can persist. Basically, it stays in place, kind of hunkers down. It's probably more limited. It can move. And for this, I want you to picture those large-scale rain shifts Jack was talking about earlier, like spruce moving from here up into Canada. And finally, it could die. Like, take hemlock, for example. Pollen records show that hemlock got to Wisconsin through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan around 5,000 years ago. Geologically, and even compared to like a lot of the other trees here today, that's kind of recent. One explanation could be that climate was slowly warming, but it took hemlock a way longer time to track its ideal habitat toward northern Wisconsin. If that's the truth, that's important because that says that if we want to help species adapt to current climate change, we need to assist them. They can't move very fast on their own, and so we might really need to like, you know, plant hemlock seedlings. 
I do think that one of our greatest challenges facing us when we think about climate change is imagining the worlds of the future, right? We are moving to this, a state of the climate system that we have not seen in our lifetimes and arguably our species has not seen in its evolutionary lifetime. The expectation is that species will move north. Jack said these changes are playing out around us already, and it has pretty profound implications for how we decide what is native here and what isn't, like what belongs and what doesn't. But I, And I do think that what's most useful about paleoecology is that, that kind of opening of vision and that recognition that you know the way things are now, that we might not have to be the way things that always were, and that helps kind of broaden our imagining about the way things could be. So if we can start to understand how species have changed, which species are most sensitive to climate change, which species have the highest rate of response and able to kind of quickly adapt or move on their own versus which ones might need a helping hand. So those are the kinds of lessons that I try to help communicate and share with, with you know, current ecologists and, and land managers. Jack has argued that we need to shift from thinking about states to thinking about rates. We're kind of used to this framework in which you try to manage systems to be in a certain state. You know, we want to keep things the way they are in some certain condition. I would now argue that we are living in a world that is going to be changing around us for at least the next several decades because of rising temperatures and so forth. And given that, it's, it's not usually a realistic goal to hold things to a certain way of being. And so that what becomes more important is think about rates of change and which rates of change do you want to accelerate if, you, if you're trying to help accelerate species, migrations, or other kinds of adapt, adaptations to changing climates? And which ones do you want to maybe limit if you're worried about you know, an invasive species that's causing damage to your, um, your lake or other ecosystem? Managing invasive species is all about limiting how fast and how widely a species can spread. But Jack says we're heading toward a future where we may have to actually advance the rate certain species can spread. And that just flies in the face of everything we're taught about invasive species. This question, should we encourage species to move and maybe should we even be the ones moving them? It's kind of divisive. Traditional restoration ecology would say you don't do that. You try to restore things the way they were and protect that. But there is another emerging community that says it is our obligation to help species you know, migrate. Of course, the most important thing we can do is limit our carbon emissions. But after that, what species do you move? Where do you move them? Who gets to decide? Do we have an obligation to be doing that? And do we have like a right to do that? I tend to be in the camp of those who think that when climates change, species move, and we should help species move. And if we are you know, holding to these kind of somewhat arbitrary, time-limited perspectives about what is a natural ecosystem, we are limiting ourselves and limiting the species that we're trying to protect. Of course, Jack is cautious about recommending this type of assisted migration. For example, he says, no moving species across continents, but he is open to moving species within continents. One classic narrative is that things were good in the past, we have wrecked lots of things, and now we need to restore back to that sort of Edenic prior. I think that is a mindset that we need to kind of need to move away from. And so just knowing that there's been this kind of ongoing sweep of species moving back and forth across, you know, the continents and, you know, species mixtures and communities kind of, you know, reshuffling and, and remixing over time, that to some degree says that, you know, what we're just seeing around us right now is change. And it's changing from one set of species around us to another set of species around us. And so to accept and sometimes facilitate change 
while at the same time really trying to prevent things that cause you know, irrevocable extinction of species or you know, loss of key ecosystem services that we really value and protect. Back in the Shiguamagan forest, Rob and Hannah are trudging through the snow on their way back from their last phenology site, where they're keeping watch for signs of change in the woods and on the lakes. In general, I think it's really important to do the stuff we're doing and like be out there on the landscape. Mm -hmm. There's a mm -hmm. lot of people that can tell you a lot from looking at computer models and stuff, but is it actually what we're seeing out there? So no. That's still important. Be being out in it, is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. You can't understand it if you're not. Yeah. For the communities Hannah and Rap serve, the beings they are looking out for are connected to their traditions and culture in profound ways. Yeah, I, th I think for us, trying to maintain those beings is probably, we, d we have to do that and keep them here as long as we possibly can. Um, because they're completely integrated with the culture and what happens when the old stories don't apply anymore? What happens when you talk about wild rice and nobody's seen wild rice for a generation or two generations? Increasing habitat connectivity to create ecologic corridors and maintain diversity is a key strategy in the tribal climate adaptation menu. When it comes to actively moving species though, Hannah and Rob are way more wary. Yeah, it's like every single one of these trees has checks and balances on it from the other things in its community. Yeah. And if you bring something new in, you don't know what was in the, when in its community and whether the other beings here are going to be part of that community or whether it's going to cause problems. So, it's, you know, people look at that and, and it's a real concern that they don't want to lose the relationships they've had with some of the beings that we know are very vulnerable to climate change. And they're also afraid of what could happen if somebody new comes in. The, the records for that really aren't that good. Hannah points out that this perspective might not be shared by all the native people that Glyphook serves. And she and Rob certainly don't intend to speak for everyone. The whole mindset of control and management, you know, we have that. We're managers, we want to do things, we want to fix stuff, we want to make it better. And maybe we need to sit back and see what it's going to do by itself. Yeah, managing does imply that we're in charge and we decide what to do. And mm -hmm. Those other ones out in the forest don't have any say in it. We use caring sometimes, or taking care of those who take care of us. There are lots of ideas about how we can manage through climate change and adapt to climate change. And one group trying to figure out the climate adaptation problem is the tribal climate adaptation menu team that we talked to before. After two years of work, they finally went public with the menu in 2019. But that's not to say the menu won't grow and change in the future. It's really a living document one, one interesting thing that's come about is, you know, it was created with natural resources projects in mind, but people have been eager to use it for other topics as well, like education projects and even things related to mental health and physical health. Everything's related, right? Uh, and so it's very difficult to try and take a topic such as forestry, for example. 
and cut out all of these other ties and connection to it and just focus on like a single tree species or something like that. Nothing is certain except for change. Climate change is happening. Species are being forced to move. People are being forced to move. There are many different ways to respond to this challenge and probably all of them are gonna be needed. We're in uh, changing times, right? And in, a, in an era where uh, there's a whole lot of uncertainty that's out there. Well, if you ask me, I think it's the indigenous people that are best suited to lead the charge during those times because our culture is adaptable. We've been adapting this entire time. We've been adapting even while we were assimilated. And so as this, this change continues to happen, I think it's important that those agencies, um, both federal, state, um, NGOs, whatever, really start uplifting the indigenous communities around them um, and start giving us more authority on these decisions. And if you think about what tribes want and you think about treaty rights, hunt, hunting and fishing and gathering, if you upheld those rights across Anishinaabe Waking, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, if our water was clean enough to have healthy fish populations, the non-native community would benefit. If our wildlife populations were healthy enough to support um, a, a healthy harvest, the non-native community will benefit. If the medicines and the plants are healthy and they're able to share their gifts with us through harvesting, I guarantee you that that landscape will be healthy and be beneficial to non-tribal people too. And I think the tribes are ready to do that. And I think we're ready to take that position. Um, and I think it's time. Climate change threatens to upend everything Western science understands about native and invasive species. And it's scary. Like, if humans decide to move species in order to help them adapt, we don't know how they're going to react to species in the new areas. If we open up corridors and take down dams, there's always a possibility that other nuisance species could migrate up and change the ecosystems. And that could change our waters like now in the very short term. And you know, there are people who their whole job is to stop the spread of aquatic invasive species in order to protect the environment. And they would say, we need to be very careful and understand the risks of what we do. But there are also risks in not taking action, like pushing off decisions for future generations. It's scary to think that the places we know and love could change, that the species that we know like walleye, wild rice, beech trees, they potentially won't be able to survive here anymore. We've got a lot of work to do before we can adapt to climate change in a respectful and beneficial way. And one thing we need to do before we make decisions is listen. Like the Tribal Adaptation Menu team listening to their communities to create their framework. Like Rob and Hannah, they're closely listening to all of the beings in the forest to see how they live season to season, year to year. Thankfully, these people and a host of others are thinking about climate adaptation and planning for the future. I want to redo what the Tribal Climate Adaptation Menu suggests. It says that communities should favor or restore native beings that are expected to do well under future conditions and that can help meet future needs. 
It says that communities should establish and encourage new mixes of local beings expected to do well under future conditions to meet future needs, and that communities should seek out and share traditional and cultural knowledge of potential new beings from tribal communities where these beings are native. What that comes down to is, and I'm quoting, encourage community adjustments and transition while maintaining reciprocity and balance. You can find a link to the Tribal Climate Adaptation menu in the description below. For non-Native listeners, the first eight pages of the menu are about guiding principles for interacting with tribes, and this is a great place to start. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and me, Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at UWISC Sea Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.